A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. On the night of December 23, 1981, A 16-year-old waitress at a donut shop in Winnipeg, Manitoba, was preparing to close for the evening. An unknown man entered the shop and dragged her into the woman's washroom. Her body would be discovered unconscious on the floor by a passerby just a few minutes after the assault. Although she initially survived the attack, she would die in hospital a few days later. This crime would shock the nation put a wrongfully convicted man in prison, and leave a serial killer on the streets for decades. This is the murder of Barbara Stoppel, and this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 20 of True North, True Crime, and thanks for joining us. We want to start off this week's episode by thanking our listeners who bought us some coffees this week. Yeah, a big thank you and a big shout out to Peter Nielsen and a big thank you to Sam, as well as uh, a huge shout out to our anonymous donor this week. We really appreciate all of your donations to the podcast. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. It can be just a one-time donation, or if you want to become an honorary producer of the podcast, you can choose the member option at Buy Me a Coffee for just $5 a month. If you're unable to donate at this time but would still like to support us, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or hit follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. You could also tell a friend about True North True Crime and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TNTCPod or on Facebook at True North True Crime. We received some really kind words from Ronnie Dean Harris this week. For those that don't know Ronnie, he's a First Nations multimedia artist. He's a composer, an actor, and a visual artist. He also runs workshops for youth called Reframing Relations through the Vancouver Arts Council. Ronnie is an organizer and a researcher for many causes that affect Canadians. 
Now, we know we have lots of uh, Vancouver film people who listen to this podcast, and we think that you should check out RonnieDeanHarris.com to find out how Ronnie can make your project better. Tonight's episode was compiled by using publicly available court documents, news articles, and the book Stoppel, written by retired Winnipeg police sergeant, Detective Andrew Mikolajewski. For the first time ever, we are going to be bringing you a two-part episode, as this story was way too much for just one. The more we looked into this case, the more we uncovered. This is actually a historic case that remains unsolved to this day. It involves a murder, a wrongful conviction, a botched investigation, and a serial killer who remained a free man. So we are talking about the murder of Barbara Stoppel, a 16-year-old waitress and high school student. This murder occurred in 1981 in the city of Winnipeg, Manitoba. First, we need to talk about Winnipeg, and more specifically, Winnipeg in the early 1980s. Winnipeg is the capital city of the Eastern Prairie Province of Manitoba. The province of Manitoba is situated to the east of Saskatchewan, west of Ontario, and to its north is Nunavut, and to its south it shares a border with North Dakota and Minnesota. Winnipeg sits on what is considered Treaty 1 territory, and is the traditional land and territories of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Dakota, Dene, Métis, and Ojibwe nations. In 1981, Winnipeg had a population of over 500,000 people. This was actually a pretty new development, because in the 70s, the city had amalgamated with surrounding regions and had a massive population bump from about 200,000 to over 500,000. In a lot of ways, Winnipeg was seen as a city on a big growth trajectory. The city had many manufacturing jobs. It also was considered a big transportation hub, which created lots of jobs. Sadly, like many cities, Winnipeg suffered financially after the 1979 energy crisis and was trying to get back on its feet. The federal, provincial, and civic governments invested heavily in an attempt to revitalize the city. We should also add that Winnipeg is home to one of Canada's most beloved sports franchises. We are, of course, talking about the Winnipeg Jets of the National Hockey League. Anecdotally, Winnipeg is often referred to by Canadians as Winterpeg because of its shockingly cold winters, and I'm absolutely sure that Winnipeggers are very tired of that old joke. So it's with that backdrop that we introduce you to Barbara Stoppel. Barbara Gale Stoppel was born on August 9, 1965. Her parents were Muriel and Fred. She had two older siblings, Rick and Roxanne. They were both in their 20s and had already moved out of the family home by 1981. In 1981, Barbara was 16 years old. She was a typical teenager focused on school, sports, and her social life. She was in grade 10 at Nelson McIntyre Collegiate. Barbara excelled in academics and she was outgoing. She was also kind, friendly, and thoughtful. She was known to see the good in everyone. Her free time was spent at the roller skating rink, playing sports, and more specifically basketball. She was also a member of her high school volleyball team. She was apparently pretty mature, and she hung out with an older group of friends and was actually very popular. She had big dreams and wanted to become an actress. She studied acting at the Manitoba Theatre Workshop and after auditioning on December 9, 1981, landed herself the lead role in the school's annual play. She had recently started a part-time job as a waitress at the Ideal Donut Shop, located just a few blocks from where she lived with her parents. In December of 1981, Barbara had recently been grounded for not doing her chores, but she was allowed to work her shifts at the donut shop. At the shop, customers loved her. She would talk to her customers for hours, even if she had just met them. On Wednesday, December 23, 1981, Barbara was so excited for Christmas to arrive. 
She'd wrap some gifts for her friends, which included salt and pepper shakers, candles, spices, and of course, Rubik's cubes, as it was 1981. She kept a long written list of other gifts she'd purchased for the family. Barbara also had a new boyfriend she had met recently at a party. His name was Daryl, and for him, she bought a football jersey. Two days earlier, on December 21st, Barb had marked on her calendar with a special note. It said, one month with me and Daryl. She was in love, and she was looking forward to Daryl joining her family for supper on Christmas Eve at her family home in Winnipeg's Norwood Flats. On the afternoon of December 23rd, Barbara got ready for work. She did her hair and chose her outfit. She was actually originally scheduled to work this shift, but then she did a favor for a friend and switched out of it. But then at the last minute, her friend asked Barbara if she could work it anyway, so she said yes. And I know that sounds confusing, but basically Barbara almost didn't work this shift. So Barbara left her family home at around 3.30 p.m. to work her 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. shift at Ideal Donuts. The donut shop is actually part of the Dominion Shopping Center. Dominion Shopping Center is more of a plaza, with lots of shops there having shopfronts onto a large parking lot. There is a McDonald's directly across from the Ideal Donut Shop, and it actually looks directly into it. If you're sitting at one of the window tables of the McDonald's, you can see right into Ideal Donuts. This will play heavily in witness statements as well as in our part two. So we're now going to get into what exactly happened to Barbara on this night. We are going to quote heavily from the book Stoppel by Andrew Mikolaevsky. At around 8.46 p.m., a police dispatcher put out a call for officers to attend a robbery and possible sexual assault at Ideal Donuts. When the unit arrived, they found about half a dozen people outside of the diner trying to flag them down. One of them called out, I think she's dead. A rookie constable named Gary Schmidt entered the shop. Inside, he found Barbara Stoppel lying on her back on the floor of the women's washroom located at the back of the diner. She was fully outstretched with her left arm pinned under her body in what was described as an unusual position. As Schmidt felt for a pulse, he discovered a green and yellow nylon twine wrapped twice around her neck and tied in two knots. It was embedded so tightly that it hadn't been seen by those who initially found her. Barbara had continued to silently choke as she laid on the floor, waiting for emergency responders to arrive. Constable Schmidt removed the twine and placed it on the bathroom sink. Ambulance attendants soon arrived and rushed her to the St. Boniface Hospital only seconds away. She would cling to life for several days, but ultimately succumb to her injuries and pass. On December 29th at 9.30 a.m., she was pronounced dead. The cause of death was strangulation. As the investigation unfolded, it turned out that there were many witnesses who were able to give a solid timeline of events, and some of them actually engaged with the assailant. Lorraine Janauer was working at the Boots Drugstore at the Dominion Shopping Center only seconds away. Just after 8 p.m. that night, she walked to the Ideal Donut Shop to buy a coffee. As she crossed the parking lot, she saw a man inside the shop locking the front door. She felt that this was odd and walked closer to the building which had a large glass window exposing the interior. She recalled that the man was Caucasian in his early 20s with a poor complexion and noticeable acne on his face. His hair was brown and unkempt, and he had a long, scraggly mustache and sideburns. He wore dark-rimmed prescription glasses and a dark cowboy hat. The unknown man turned around and walked to the rear of the store and into the woman's washroom. Upset that perhaps it was the waitress's friend helping her close early, she returned to work and called the owner to complain. There was no answer, so she called the donut shop directly, 
but there was also no answer. Several minutes later, Lorraine's husband, Norman, arrived to pick her up. She was still angry at what she had seen earlier and encouraged him to have a look at the donut shop himself. He walked over to the front of the shop, where he saw the same strange man with the cowboy hat walk to the front door, flip the closed sign around so that it said closed, and then the man exited the store brushing past him while carrying a box. The guy with the cowboy hat turned to him and said, don't bother, it's closed, and then continued on his way. Norman went inside the store and walked towards the woman's washroom. Norman reached the rear of the store and found that the door to the women's washroom was shut. He opened it and found Barbara, unconscious, on the floor. Her head was slightly tilted and pushed up against the wall and her legs fully stretched towards the toilet. Her left arm was pinned under her body and there was a purplish tinge to her face and hands. There were slight bloodstains on the south wall about four inches from the ground. There was also some slight appearance of blood about her mouth and teeth. He shouted for his wife to call the police, and then he saw the cowboy running across the parking lot towards the McDonald's. He noticed a young man standing by the doorway wearing a snowmobile suit and quickly told him to go after the man. The young man chased after the cowboy hat dude to a nearby bridge. Allegedly, the cowboy hat man then pulled a knife on him. Cowboy hat then threw the box he was carrying over the side of the bridge, and eventually the cowboy hat man escaped and disappeared into the night. As police descended onto the scene, they canvassed the area in search of the man in the cowboy hat, but they did not find him. They did find the box he tossed off the bridge, as well as the following. Two black and white colored gloves. The left glove was found with green twine 172 inches in length. The left glove was also found with Kleenex next to it. They also found five pieces of green and yellow braided nylon rope, and the pieces were noted to have been balled up as if removed from a pocket. They also found the cardboard box and one salmon-colored coffee stick inside the box. So aside from the Jan hours, there were other witnesses that helped to create the timeline for this crime. First off, we have Myron Zuck, an employee of GTTV, observed the man in the donut shop between 8.30 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. and watched him leave with a box. Andy Dufault was the last known customer at the donut shop. He left around 8.15 p.m. and he recalled that Barbara was alone and talking on the phone. Barbara's friend Darlene Church reported that she was the person on the phone with her at 8 p.m., the conversation lasted about 10 minutes, and there was no indication that anything was wrong. Alan Shapiro, manager of McDonald's, saw the man in his store at approximately 4 p.m. He described the male as Caucasian, 6 feet tall, 170 pounds, 25 years old, with a dark mustache, round, thin glasses, cowboy boots, dark brown cowboy hat, jeans, and a short jacket. Bernard Rio was an employee at the Dominion grocery store and he saw the cowboy enter his store at 6 p.m. Kathleen Rowan was an employee at the Norwood Hotel coffee shop and saw the man in her shop at 3 p.m. So without getting into too much more detail, there were actually six other witnesses that saw the man with the cowboy hat at various locations around the Dominion Shopping Center between noon and 8.30 p.m. So it's very specific that this guy was in and around, hanging around, the Dominion Shopping Center throughout the day. Although some witness accounts differ on age or the color of his cowboy hat, they all describe the man as being Caucasian, about 25 years old, 6 feet to 6 feet 2, 150 pounds with a slim yet muscular build, brown hair, slight mustache, wearing a cowboy hat, 
a parka with a zipper front, fur trim, jean jacket underneath, and cowboy boots and glasses. So we have a tall, slim, younger man with bad skin, some facial hair, glasses, a cowboy hat, and he was creeping around this mall all day. The evidence gathered at the scene is as follows. Hair samples were located on the top of the toilet tank in the women's washroom. These were found to be consistent with Barbara's hair, suggesting that she had struck her head on the toilet and may have been knocked out. Apart from the slight bruising to the inner portions of both arms and a bruise behind her right ear, there were no other signs of a struggle. The twine found around her neck was the same as the five pieces located under the bridge. The gloves located under the Norwood Bridge were a matching pair. The left glove had fibers of twine consistent with the twine around her neck. Crime lab results also found an acrylic textile on the glove consistent with Barbara's sweater, therefore obviously connecting the gloves to the attacker and therefore Barbara's murder. Now there was a saliva stain that was located on the rear of Barbara's pants. This was found to be the same as the DNA in a piece of bubble gum located on the bathroom floor that did belong to Barbara. However, Mixed in with that saliva was a small amount of male DNA. The sample was so minute, it could not be used to confirm the donor's identity. Three unidentified palm prints were lifted from the middle of the exit door. These prints may have been made by emergency personnel or customers during the day, or they may have been the suspect's palm prints, although he was seen wearing gloves. There was also another fingerprint that was found on a rear door in the donut shop. Again, it may have been the suspect, or it may have been a customer or emergency personnel. Also, there was $33 missing from the cash register. So clearly there was not really a lot of evidence that could point directly at one person. The DNA was sparse and not really a thing in 1981. I think DNA started in 1986. The suspect wore gloves. There was no CCTV footage. No one was caught on the run. No leads. But the Winnipeg police focused in on one piece of evidence specifically, and that was the rope or twine that was found around Barbara's neck. Although the twine was not tested, it was believed to have been manufactured by Powers Twine in Washington, who sold it to BC Hydro. Representatives from the company stated that the twine was similar in configuration. So when we talk about testing the rope, the Powers Twine Company in Washington actually puts a chemical inside of their rope and twine. That way, if anything goes wrong with the rope, they can identify and say, yes, that is our rope. And they do this for insurance purposes. Now, the Winnipeg police could have paid $100 in 1981 to have the rope tested to find out if it was, in fact, Powers Twine, therefore connecting it to British Columbia. They chose not to do that. Instead, I think they sent a photo of the rope or twine that they found on the scene to Powers, and they said, yeah, I guess it looks like our configuration. And then Winnipeg police were like, boom, okay, perfect. So this would lead investigators to believe that although the crime had happened in Winnipeg, it must have been committed by somebody from British Columbia. So this would send the police on a journey to find their suspect some 2,000 kilometers away in Vancouver, British Columbia. And that man's name was Thomas Sofino. So let's talk about who Thomas Sofino is after a quick break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we are back. So clearly the Winnipeg Police Service were under a tremendous amount of pressure to make an arrest in this case. More than 700 tips came into the police over a period of months, leading to a labor-intensive investigation and no arrests. One of the only pieces of concrete evidence in this case was the twine. It was determined that it was most likely manufactured by Powers Twine from Everson, Washington, and sent to companies in the Vancouver area. These distributors subsequently sold it to BC Hydro for the purpose of being used as a shot line. As a result, Winnipeg police investigators believed that the suspect had a British Columbia connection. Thomas Sofino's introduction into the investigation triggered a sequence of events that led investigators to believe that they had finally found their man. At the time of Barb's murder, he was 28 years old and described as a Caucasian male, 6 feet, 4 inches tall, 180 pounds, with brown curly hair, brown hazel eyes, long sideburns, a mustache, and he wore gold rim glasses. He was a resident of British Columbia, and he was visiting Winnipeg on the day of the attack. He was attempting to see his daughter Kimberly. He had a bad relationship with his ex-wife Nadine, and she refused to allow him to visit with his daughter for Christmas. But he drove to Winnipeg anyway and dropped off her presents at Nadine's sister's house. Afterwards, he planned to drive to Mexico in his 1971 two-door light blue Monte Carlo. Safino left Winnipeg driving south, but soon turned around due to car problems. He went to a Canadian tire for servicing and learned that the caliper was seizing. As a result, he decided to return to British Columbia after stopping for coffee at a Tim Hortons on Portage Avenue in Winnipeg. Sometime during the initial hours of his drive, he heard on the radio that a girl in a donut shop had been assaulted. Having just been in a Tim Hortons where they sell donuts and coffee, he called his sister in BC and asked if the police were looking for him in the event that it was the same Tim Hortons. She advised they had not. And keep in mind that this is a 24-hour straight drive from Winnipeg to Vancouver. So he later stopped at Ryan's Restaurant in Hope, British Columbia, which is a couple hours outside of Vancouver. And he saw a poster of a missing girl named Verna Berkey. Thomas believed that he had seen that girl in Winnipeg. And subsequently, he called the RCMP, who took a formal statement. In the statement, Safino gave a Winnipeg address, prompting the RCMP to forward the request for follow-up from Winnipeg investigators regarding Berkey's disappearance. The request landed on the desk of Sergeant Bill Vandergraaf of the Winnipeg Police Department. Vandergraaf was unable to locate Safano in Winnipeg, and since he had come from BC, he looked up his Winnipeg identification picture from 1977 and found that it was quite similar to the composite drawing of the suspect from the Barbara Stoppel murder. Winnipeg police then initiated an investigation into Thomas Safano. On February 16th, 56 days after Barbara's murder, Sergeant Vandergraaf started interviewing several of Safano's contacts in Winnipeg. This included his ex-wife Nadine, his ex-sister-in-law, 
a former girlfriend, and two other friends. The information obtained is as follows. Nadine Sofano felt that Tom fit the description of the composite drawing and told police that upon first police contact, she felt it would be about the Stoppel murder. She thought Tom was capable of blowing up and she was afraid of him, although he had never assaulted her in the past. His sister-in-law indicated that Sofano went to their house at 3.30 p.m. to drop off his daughter's Christmas gifts on the day of the murder and left at 5 p.m. He was wearing a three-quarter length brown leather coat with another jacket underneath, brown dress pants, tinted glasses, cowboy boots, and he had a mustache at the time. When asked if he was wearing a cowboy hat, they advised he was not. A former girlfriend reported that Sofano and her lived together on the other side of the bridge across from the Dominion Shopping Center. She also recalled he had a cowboy hat, which he had bought in the summer of 1981, and he wore it regularly. Also of note, she recalled that he carried a knife, and he attended the Dominion Shopping Center on occasion to eat at the McDonald's. More interesting to investigators, though, she recalled that she had seen a yellow rope in his car. Two more of Tom's friends from Winnipeg said that he matched the description of the composite drawing. Okay, so we have Thomas Sofano in Winnipeg on the day of the murder. He resembles the composite drawing. He's known to carry a knife. He's upset at not being allowed to see his daughter. And this provides the investigators with enough grounds to consider him a person of interest in the case. More compelling, of course, is that he had a BC connection, which may link him to the murder weapon, which is the rope. Yeah, so keep in mind all the confirmed times Sofano was with people in Winnipeg that day. They align with the numerous times that the cowboy suspect is spotted by witnesses in the shopping center, meaning that he could not have been there and he had an alibi. But the police felt they had the right person. So on March 3, 1982, Vancouver police completed their initial interview with Thomas Sofano and forwarded that to the Winnipeg investigators. This interview is typewritten and allegedly verbatim, and I've read it, and I have to say that it reads like a cop talking. It even has 24-hour clock language, which is odd, because very rarely does a normal non-military person or non-police person say, oh yeah, I was somewhere at 0100 hours or 1755, so it's actually quite strange when you read it. Um, It seems like the cop is just going from memory. So one of the main issues for Tom was that he couldn't remember which donut shop he had gone to. It was a Tim Hortons, but in the interview, after a lot of pressure, he stated that it could have been the ideal donut shop that Barbara worked at. Yeah, the Vancouver police then lied to Thomas and told him that his fingerprints were inside the donut shop. Um, So Thomas then said he could have been there. And then the police lied again and said his prints were in the women's bathroom. Thomas said clearly that he would never go into a woman's washroom. Um, But the police had already lied enough times to make him admit that he was in Ideal Donut Shop. So on top of a bit of a coerced confession here, we have Thomas unfortunately calling his sister on that night, stating that he was in a donut shop and wondering if the police were after him, which is obviously odd. And then we have him calling the RCMP regarding a missing Winnipeg woman while he was in hope when he saw her missing persons poster, placing himself in Winnipeg. So there's been a lot of things thus far that have worked against him, unfortunately. Yeah. And I'd like to say it gets better, but it actually doesn't. Thomas goes on to do a whole bunch of stuff and say some things um, that make things a lot worse. 
On March 11th, a Polaroid picture of Sofano wearing his cowboy hat was combined with seven other Polaroid pictures of suspects and shown to witnesses Norman and Lorraine Janauer. Five of the individuals, including Sofano, were wearing cowboy hats and glasses. The remaining two were not. Lorraine Janauer picked out Sofano's photo and stated, if anything, he'd be like this. Her husband also picked the same photo and stated, this guy, I know him from somewhere, and I don't know why. This would prompt the Vancouver Police Department to interview Thomas again, this time for 14 hours straight. And things got very bad. By the end of it, Thomas placed himself inside the donut shop at the time of the murder. The VPD held him in a cell overnight with an undercover cop as a cellmate. According to the undercover, Thomas admitted to entering the donut shop, locking the door, and buying a coffee, and leaving. This door lock admission would bury him. Thomas Sofano would be arrested and charged with the murder of 16-year-old Barbara Stoppel. But what Thomas didn't realize was that he had called his mother from a Canadian tire on the other side of Winnipeg between 7.52 and 7.56 p.m. on the night of the murder, thus making it virtually impossible for him to be at the donut shop. The call from the Canadian tire on Pembina Highway at 7.52 p.m. was some 14 to 19 minutes away from Ideal Donut Shop. Police confirmed the call was made and lasted for four minutes ending at 7.56 p.m., a full 19 to 24 minutes from when the cowboy was first seen by witnesses in the donut shop. It may have been the most important phone call that Thomas had ever made. Other phone calls Thomas made throughout the day happened at the exact times other people witnessed the cowboy at the shopping center. And we need to remind everybody this happened in 1981, before the time there were any cell phones, so any call Thomas made would have to be from a business, a payphone, or a phone inside a residence. Also want to remind people that he was at a Tim Hortons. He wasn't at Ideal Donut Shop, and he could actually eventually prove that he was at a Tim Hortons, but the police had misled him. And keep in mind that Thomas Sofenow was being asked to give a detailed account of a two-day trip to Winnipeg that occurred three months earlier. But despite all of this, Thomas Sofano was transported to Winnipeg and ID'd in a lineup by witnesses. A series of jailhouse informants would also claim that Thomas admitted to the crime while in remand. There was no tangible evidence tying Thomas to the crime, but despite that, his trial would begin and the people of Winnipeg would breathe a sigh of relief that the monster who allegedly killed Barbara would soon face justice. Thomas Sofano's trial would begin in 1982. The Crown's position was that Sofano went to Winnipeg to see his daughter for Christmas and became enraged when his wife, his ex-wife, denied him. They argued that he had enough time to leave the Canadian Tire Store and go to Ideal Donut Shop and then murder a stranger for absolutely no reason whatsoever, except that he was angry, upset, and disappointed with his ex-wife. The Crown's case was strengthened by his similarity to the composite and by Sofano's own comments to police during interviews. He placed himself inside the ideal donut shop at the time of her murder. He had a BC connection, a cowboy hat, wore cowboy boots, and even told an undercover officer in the next cell that he had locked the door in the donut shop. Lawyers for Thomas Sofano would maintain that this was a case of mistaken identity they would highlight the fact that Sofano was at a Canadian tire store 14 to 19 minutes away from the crime scene and could not have been the killer. And get this, it turns out that Thomas actually had an alibi. Sofano would testify that once he left the Canadian tire, he drove to the St. Boniface 
and Mesocordia hospitals and delivered candy stockings for the children. He then went to the Tim Hortons on Portage Avenue for a coffee, then dropped off more stockings at Grace Hospital. Then he drove back to Vancouver. Safina would admit that he did not disclose his alibi initially because he didn't think it was important. He also defended some of his remarks during police interviews, testifying that it was the police that had told him the details about the time and the place of the murder. Yeah, I got the feeling reading the initial interviews that Thomas Safino wasn't a big fan of the police and how they were treating him. So I think that the alibi thing, not mentioning it was, I don't know, I think he was just kind of being obtuse with them. But Thomas Safino's first trial in 1982 would result in a hung jury and therefore be declared a mistrial. In 1983, he went through a second trial. He would be found guilty. Safino would quietly whisper, I didn't do it. This verdict was later overturned by the Court of Appeal and a third trial was ordered. Once again, Safino, his family, and the Stopples would have to endure many more months of anguish. The third trial in 1985 resulted in yet another guilty decision, but it was later overturned and a verdict of acquittal was entered. The Crown appealed this decision. On April 22, 1986, five years after Barbara's murder, the courts denied the prosecution's appeal and entered a decision that there would be no further prosecution of Sofino. The general feeling of the courts, police, and politicians was that he had successfully gotten away with murder. This marked the beginning of Sofino's pleas for a review of the case. He wasn't happy just being found not guilty. He wanted to be fully exonerated and for the Winnipeg police to find the person who killed Barbara Stoppel. Physically, he was a free man, but psychologically, he would remain in prison for years to come. 1986 marked the beginning of an ordeal that would have him request a review of the case to find the real killer. His communications in written and verbal form to the police, the courts, and politicians all landed on deaf ears. He was quoted, I'm pleading with you, the media, to do anything you can to help me put an end to this matter and help me disclose the one thing I've been fighting for all this time for the truth. So this part really infuriates me. Like, he was being denied at the highest forms of government. In fact, the Attorney General of Manitoba responded to him by saying that there is a huge difference between being found not guilty because the Crown couldn't prove their case and being found innocent. This Attorney General was actually quoted as saying, quote, There has been a formal request by Mr. Safino through counsel, not only for compensation, but for the appointment of a commission of inquiry to examine the conduct of the police. In my considered view, there is no need for such an inquiry. This is what he said. So, like, Thomas is trying to plead his case wherever he can, and even at the highest forms of provincial government, they're just like, no. So, clearly, Thomas Sofano is facing an uphill battle against a system that's just assumed his guilt from the very beginning. Let's talk about what happened next and the conclusion of this part of the story after a quick break. We are back. Thomas Safino was tried three times for Barbara Stoppel's murder, but he eventually walked out of the system a free man. But his freedom was tenuous. There were always whispers that he had gotten away with murder. And even at the highest positions of government, he was considered a murderer. He wrote letters, hired lawyers, he pleaded with the media. 
All he wanted was for the case to be reviewed and for the real perpetrator to be held accountable. Year after year went by, and although he was pardoned on August 19, 1993, no one would review the case. On September 21, 1999, Winnipeg police finally responded with a 98-page report entitled Analysis of Barbara Gale Stoppel Death. This report was an absolute slap in the face. It provided an in-depth analysis of the initial investigation, the arrest of Sofino, his trials, his appeal, and at the end, it concluded that Sofino was still a viable suspect in the murder. Finally, in October of 1999, a secret task force was put together by the Winnipeg police to review Barbara's murder. They found that there were many problems with the initial investigation. Firstly, due to tunnel vision that was directed at Sofino, the police did not fully investigate all suspects, or vet their alibis. The twine that was used as a jumping-off point to tie the murder to B.C. was actually manufactured in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, and had no connection whatsoever to British Columbia. It turns out that, like we said, the company that actually made the rope has a chemical inside of it to identify it for insurance purposes. This test would have cost the Winnipeg Police Department $100 in 1981 but they chose not to test the rope for 20 years. This test would have stopped the BC connection in its tracks and therefore left Thomas out of the line of fire for the Winnipeg police. Many of the eyewitnesses who ID'd Thomas admitted to misremembering things, and some had felt coerced by the urgency of the case. They basically wanted to convict whoever the police felt did the crime. It also became apparent that the crime scene itself was never secured. Witnesses and first responders wandered around the donut shop, leaving handprints, shoe prints, and DNA everywhere. Additionally, the Winnipeg police destroyed some of the evidence in the case, and one Winnipeg police detective actually took evidence home that he referred to as trophies. This obviously made DNA testing to find the true killer absolutely impossible. And from what I understand, they actually destroyed or took home evidence after Thomas Sofino's final exoneration. Like, wouldn't you think you would need to keep that in order to prosecute the actual person who committed the crime? So the missing evidence included Barbara's bra, her underwear, her socks, her belt, shoes, and her wallet and identification. Also missing was a Kleenex with mucus on it, which may have belonged to the actual killer. And unsurprisingly to everyone, this cop was never reprimanded or let go. At the end of this investigation, the special task force would state that Thomas Sofino did not commit this murder. In an odd press conference, the Winnipeg Police Service would state that new evidence had proved Thomas Sofino's innocence in the crime. However, that new evidence was never disclosed. This has led many to conclude that there is no new evidence just simply a botched investigation resulting in a wrongful conviction. A commission of inquiry regarding the investigation and prosecution of Sofino began in October 2000 and continued until June 2001. The inquiry was initiated with the premise of Sofino's innocence and its purpose was to learn how an innocent man was imprisoned and to recommend ways of avoiding similar occurrences in the future. Lastly, it was to discern what compensation he should receive for what he had endured. The inquiry found that the wrongful conviction was the result of the following reasons. Tunnel vision, unreliable eyewitness evidence, jailhouse informants, 
lack of disclosure from the Crown and the police, and coercive tactics used in interviews by the police. Thomas spent 45 months in prison for a crime that he did not commit. The inquiry report described these months as an extremely hard time. Thomas was kept in segregation for 23 hours each day. Thomas suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and will likely continue to do so for the rest of his life. One of the psychiatrists who testified at the inquiry stated that his preoccupation with what has happened to him clouds his thinking every minute. So Thomas's mental state has forever been changed by these events, but so too has his reputation. He's been officially exonerated, but to wrongfully convict someone of murder is to forever damage their reputation as a person. When Thomas returned to the workforce, people would put signs on his back that read, Murderer. There was also a firebombing of his house that could have killed him and his family. The inquiry was run at a cost of $4 million, and this was 20 years after the crime. The settlement given to Thomas Sofino was $2.6 million. Keep in mind that this could have all been stopped with a $100 test of a piece of rope in 1981. Today, Thomas Sofino lives a quiet life on the west coast of Canada. He has been involved with the Innocence Canada Project and has sat on panels of wrongfully convicted men in Canada. In January 2020, he was at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights to discuss the impacts of being wrongly convicted and the need for an independent review board. Thomas Sofino has offered a $150,000 reward to anyone who can tell him what the new evidence was that exonerated him. The Winnipeg police will not release that information. And I love that he's doing this. He's completely calling their bluff right now. In a tragic turn of events, Thomas once again found himself in a courtroom in 2019. His 43-year-old son was convicted in the stabbing death of a 37-year-old man in Calgary. Yeah, one can only wonder if the trauma that was inflicted on Thomas Sofino had an impact on other members of his family over time. So who killed Barbara Stoppel? One suspect was investigated, and it turns out he was one of the original suspects and a potential serial killer. We will dive into that investigation, the other crimes related to the suspect, in our part two of the Barbara Stoppel story. Thank you for joining us. Please follow us on all of our socials. Tell a friend about True North True Crime. And if you feel so inclined, please donate to the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. Our producers this week are Amy's Book Reviews, Alberta Bly, Cindy McDee, Giraffe 3000, Alyssa Santos, Anastasia, Ariel Elliott, Melanie E., and Kelly Donahue. We will be back sooner than you think. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, gang. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.